I love VBS. I, I love uh, one of the things here at Living Water, we are, we're all in in student ministry. I, I've seen a lot of churches um, throughout the years um, come to a place where they're just barely holding on. And, and one of the things I've noticed in every church that's dying, the one commonality that they all have is they have no children. When we stop investing in the future generation, we've stopped investing altogether. And so one of the things that we do here is we go all out on VBS. We dress the part. We act the part because we love kids and we want them to not only have fun. I mean, fun is a, is a great part, but we want to teach them. And so I'm going to kind of do, uh, while they're having their own lesson, uh, I'm going to be sharing with you some of the things that, uh, that we learned. So one of the things I want to share with you is... Over here to the left, um, you see Miss Wendy. I want everybody to, I, I, she's, she's, she's look, giving me the eye because she's not really a, um, a Wendy today, but um, what, she's, she's Rabbi Wendy, my bad. Man, but Anna. Okay, so, got to get my parts down. But I, what I want to bring your attention to her is that when I was a little kid, their age, she was my Sunday school teacher. I bring this up all the time. One of the things that I think that we often forget is that people who teach you the Word of God in your life, especially at a young age, they're always a valuable part of your life. And one of the things that I, I love is a lot of people no longer volunteer. You know, it's hard to get volunteers to teach Sunday school classes or Wednesday night stuff with children because uh, what I always hear is, well, Daniel, when you volunteer for children, you're there until you die. <laughs> you know, like you don't ever get, you don't get out of there. Well, one of the things that we did to instill that that doesn't happen is we put semesters in place. So every 12 weeks, you can say, hey, I sign up. I want to help with the children for the next semester. You're, you, you committed 12 weeks, not beyond. And if you want to do it again, you can just tell them, hey, I'd like to do another semester. or I'd like to go take a semester with the adults next and then come back. One of the things that I want, so I want, to, I want to let you know is that one of the things when Wendy started coming and helping teach children here, she brought me a piece of paper of, of a lesson that I did in Sunday school when I was these kids' age, and she still had that. I just, some of you are missing out. Sometimes we sit in classes so long and so much that we miss out on the opportunity of teaching and investing in that next generation. So I just want you to prayerfully consider that. Um, as, we, as I brought up the semester thing, our Wednesday night courses, so that I know there has been some confusion. Uh, when you have a squirrel as a leader, sometimes uh, communication breaks down somewhere between the nuts and the acorns, you know, things like that, you know. <laughs> The, so, um, but we, this whole month of August on, and on uh, Wednesdays, we don't have any organized programs, but we're still doing a lot of training and equipping and things with our leaders. Our children, our youth are still allowed to come. We're just going to be more fellowshipping and hanging out with them rather than having an organized program. So what happens is because this is an off semester for our Wednesday night children's team, they get a break. They need a break. And so for the whole month, they do not have to, to, to get back into the program. They get a month off. The rest, several of us are going to hang out with the kids, watch some movies, throw some popcorn, probably break a thing or two. Sometimes you just need to break something. But anyway, so 
And what we did with this whole travel back in time, we really focused on a lot of the customs and things that they, the, that they did in that first century. To understand what Jesus is, was, was all these events, they decorated and make sure you check out all the classrooms and check out everything throughout the whole building. But they, they decorated the entire place to feel like a, a marketplace. This is where a lot of those things in Jerusalem would have been taking place. So the kids got a firsthand visual of what it might have been like and some of the... the, the the um, customs and traditions. So one of the things that I want to do is I want to bring to your attention um, my, two, my two helpers over here. Um, a lot of the things in this table here, um, I don't know if you guys in the back can put the uh, video on this to put it on the screen so that those in the back could see it a little bit better. Um, but there's a whole bunch of different things. When you would go into a Sanhedrin, you would walk in and there would be all these different types of things. So one of the things you see this seven, uh, the menorah with seven candles. Each one of those represents six days of creation, and the one in the middle represents the seventh day, the day of rest, the Sabbath day. And, and one of the things that, that has, has been from the day, day one, you know, when, when God did the six days of creation, he took a day of rest. And, you know, one of the things that, that I think Paul Harvey actually said was that the devil doesn't have to get you to sin. Sometimes he just needs to get you busy. And you know what? Sometimes we get so busy that we only give God one hour a week or maybe two hours. If... But a lot of times we allow ourselves to get so busy that one day they were not allowed to work. They could go to prayer. They could go to the Sanhedrin. They can worship God. That was it. It was God's day. When's the last time that we gave God a day? So the things that they did had in place were, 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 were to remind them of what they were. So the first thing that you notice is you got this really cool horn up here. We blew it to signify the beginning. It's called a shofar horn, and they would blow it at the beginning of the Sabbath and at the end of the Sabbath. They would also uh, blow it on different, different uh, to, to begin certain things that they would do. But we, we taught the kids about they would blow this horn on the, in the beginning of the Sabbath and to end it. Then you see the scrolls right here. This is the Torah, okay? Um, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And out of this, I'm going to show you, well, I guess I can't do that. I'll wait until the end. Um, out of that, I'm going to tell you a little bit later of what the, the Shema is, but um, I'll get to that in a little bit. When they would enter into the Sanhedrin, the, the people would wear a, a yarmulke, the little covering. Yep, there we go. Perfect. Perfect. And so when, the, when people, the men would come in, they would put a yarmulke on their, their head, and it would, it would cover them. And so the yarmulke, or as, as our rabbi is wearing a talit, is um, a prayer shawl, a prayer shawl. And so they would cover their head to symbolize that they are under authority. So when they would walk into the house of God, why men covered their heads was that I am under authority and I submit to the king. Pretty awesome, right? So that's the purpose of those. And so one of the other things is, is that the, they had a special dish. It was a sedar dish, and it was uh, to the beginning of Passover. And they would have horseradish a hard-boiled egg, a lamb bone. The lamb bone represented the Passover lamb. The egg represented springtime. Horseradish. <laughs> to watch the kids after they tried the horseradish was just priceless. Um, but it was to remind the people of their bitter past experiences. They would also take salt water and put that over parsley, right? And that, and, and that was to symbolize the tears 
the tears that they had wept while they were in captivity, everything on that dish was to remind. There was another one, and I forgot the actual proper name of it. Um, I probably have it written down. Yeah, the, the Haraseth. It was crushed walnuts, cinnamon, and a quarter of an apple. It sounds really good, but you mash it all together, and it looks like mud. And it was to remind them of the mud that they had to use to make bricks in their slavery. Everything that was on that dish was a reminder to remind them of what it was like without, without God leading them. You ever, have you guys ever kind of come to some places in your life where you're like, you just start leading on your own and you kind of doing your own thing, right? And so a lot of times we don't have built in our lives any reminders. That's why we teach our youth to, to write in journals Sometimes we just need to write some things down. Sometimes we need to put some reminders in our life of what's happening. Well, so we kind of have a lot of the things on the table, but now let me tell you a little bit about some of the things that they wore. So uh, let me see here. What have I forgotten? Okay, so I talked about the talit prayer shawl, which is our rabbi is wearing, and they would um, have tassels on them as well. So this is a, a, when they would go into prayer, the rabbis, not everybody got to wear this, but the rabbi would cover his head and cover his shoulders as they would enter to pray on behalf of the nation, the people. Uh, and so they got this from, uh, it was inspired by Numbers 15 uh, in chapter 15. So they also, she has a little box on her head that is the Teflon box. This is pretty neat. So, and I'm going to come back and show how they're all connected, but in this little box that's attached and bound to her forehead has a very important scripture in it. It's called the Shema, and I'm going to get to the Shema in just a little bit, but what they would do is they would have this passage of scripture inside this box to remind them, but you know what? That wasn't the only place that they wore it. They also would put it on their weakest arm, so if I'm right-handed, I'd put it on my left arm next to my heart, and it goes all the way down, and it wraps into their hand. And I'm going to tell you why they did that, but guess what scripture's in there? The same one. I'm going to show you that in just a minute, what that scripture is. They also then have, where is the uh, mezuzah? So they would have a, a mezuzah, and they were more decorated than this, but we, we wanted to get ones for all the classrooms. But they would have some kind of a little, often it was metal, but on it was written the Shema as well. So it was on their door frames of their house, and often they would also put it on, um, on the, the gates. So what I need you guys to do, if you could at this point put me back to the PowerPoint, I want to share with everybody what the Shema is. Okay, so the Shema comes from Deuteronomy, out of the Torah, the, the last book of the Torah, in verses uh, 4 through 9 of chapter 6. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the word hear, yep, the word hear is actually Shema. So it would start off, Shema Israel. So hear, listen, Israel, to this, okay? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord. See, during that time, they would all want to worship different idols, and they wanted to worship many gods like all the other peoples did. And so they would say, no, the Lord is one. There's one God. There's one king. There's one Lord. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These are the commandments that I give you today, and they are to be on your hearts so that Tiflin, that was put next to their heart, and it also said, then impress them onto your children. 
Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And so they took that extra literal and they wrote the Shema on everything. They would write them on these, these mezuzahs that would sit on the door frames. And, the, and as they would enter their house, they would kiss their fingers and touch the mezuzah. And it's not as a good luck charm. What it was is, God, I love you. I'm remembering you as I walk into my house. Isn't that amazing? Every time they walk into their house, they would kiss the, the mezuzah and say, Lord, I'm thinking about you. I love you with all of my heart, all of my mind, all of my strength. God, you are my God. And so they would do that every time they walk into their house. Wouldn't that be an amazing reminder, right? Now, so, so, so they had tied that to their foreheads. They tied that to their arms. They had it on their door frames. They were to talk to their children about it. One of the things that I love about the, the church here is that we really focus on the family. And here's the thing is all the ministries that we do for children and youth is only an assistance. We're only an assistant to you, the parents. Because the reality is this. You have your children so much more than we do. And it is so imperative for you to be the primary faith trainer in your own home. We want to help you but we can't do it for you. As this was a reminder to every parent who had children that it, they were to impress them on their children. You are to teach your children how to love the Lord with all your, your heart. You're to teach your children how to love them with all of your mind and with all of your strength. That is your responsibility and we just want to help you with that. So the other thing is, is that now Skeeter here um, is dressed as a high priest. So the difference is, is his garment's a little bit different. Normally, in his, uh, in his, his hat, it would have a gold, uh, a gold band, which we were, we were working on very limited time. So there would be a gold band, and the gold represented the glory of God. Not the glory of the priest, the glory of God. To his glory. And so he has a chest plate there. It has 12 stones, all representing the, the 12 tribes of Israel. He would have an undergarment, then he would have an a, um, apron on, and the apron was a symbol of servitude to the people. So what's interesting about the priest, and I'm going to get into a difference between the priest and, and everyone else here in just a second, but the priest, his job was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. The priest was the only one, and so one of the things that I know that they taught in our synagogue, we took one of the classes and made it into a synagogue, is that only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go beyond the curtain. But before he could go on behind the curtain, he had to sacrifice an animal for his own sin. Something that we often forget. They were, they were supposed to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people, but before they could even do that, they had to offer sacrifices to cleanse their own sin. So, I'm going to say thank you. I'm not going to make them stand there this whole time, but uh, thank you guys for, for being my um, living, walking uh, examples. They've been teaching all week in this, the, the little Sanhedrin that we created in there. They've been teaching all of these things to the kids and what the significance was and why they did that. But here's the good question. Why don't we wear all these things today? Why don't I get up looking like, I mean, probably to your humor, you would probably enjoy that probably pretty good if I was dressed up every single week. I almost thought about saying, hey, this is what we do when the pastor's gone. But then everybody knows that I'm the pastor, so I couldn't get away with that. So, um, so anyways, but why don't we 
why don't we wear that? See, what happened was when Jesus came and when Jesus died, it changed everything. So the, the, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant high priest, he wore each one of these things by law through the, the book of Leviticus of explaining what he was to wear. So I love it. In Hebrews chapter 8, it says, For if the first covenant, that's what we refer to as the Old Covenant, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second covenant. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. See, the reason why we don't wear Teflon today is because of what the Lord said in Jeremiah 31, 31. He says, I will write it in your minds and I will write it in your hearts. So I don't have to wear a box to remind me of God's word because he puts it in my mind and he puts it in my heart. Isn't that pretty awesome? So, so, he, so this is why we are not wearing all of the same things, and, uh, and we see a lot of new stuff. And so that was a, a direct quote. So what I want to do is I'm going to take just a little bit of time, because this is a, a, not a normal sermon, but this is kind of, I wanted to teach you a little bit of what we've been showing the kids. I want to talk about two things that we would compare with the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and that is the priest, which I've been just talking about a little bit, and the new priest, the high priest, Jesus Christ. And the Old Covenant, Hebrews chapter 5, and all of this comes from Hebrews that I'm sharing with you. So if you ever wanted to take a study, it would be a great study to read through and kind of see how it went from an Old Covenant to the New Covenant. But in, in Hebrews chapter 5, it says, Every high priest taken from among the men is appointed for men in the things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. And it goes on in verse 3, and it says he also must offer sacrifices for his sins. So he has to do this. So a high priest was appointed, okay? They were appointed from within the men, from men, and in verse 4, it says, no man takes this honor to himself. It wasn't like you could just wake up one day and say, oh, I want to be the high priest. Or, in the same way, you don't just wake up one day and say, oh, you know what, I think I want to be a pastor. Now, there are people who do that. It does, you know, that's probably why there's been such a high rate of people quitting and leaving the ministries. They probably were not called to begin with. But the, the thing is, is that I didn't ask to be a pastor in fact, I never in my wildest dreams would have thought that I would have ever been a pastor. And especially anybody that knew me back in the day in high school, I was probably the least likely to become a pastor. Uh, maybe a, a comedian or a class clown or a goofball, but not a pastor for sure. And so I remember I was in my college dorm and I just, I remember one day I just said, God, what do you want me to do? And it was there that I had this remarkable moment with the Lord and I had this picture, and I was preaching, and I knew what I was doing. It was just a picture. It was just planted in my mind. I was preaching, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe it's Taco Bell at one o'clock in the morning is not such a good idea. That was just probably wishful thinking, so I didn't think about it for another week, put it out of my mind. The next week, I did it again. I said, Lord, if that's really what you want to do, you're going to have to show me again, and what's really neat about this is that I'd asked the Lord 
several months after I'd received that, that vision, that picture of myself preaching, and I said, God, can you confirm this? Like, you know, I don't want to just change my major and change everything. I quit the football team. You know, I'm, I'm done with everything, and I'm just focused on, on this if this isn't what you want. And I went on a mission trip where I actually preached um, my first sermon, no, my second sermon, but I, I was preaching at, in, at, on this mission trip, and somebody took a picture, and then several weeks later, they came to me and said, you know, I really felt like the Lord impressed to give this picture to you. And I have that picture sitting on my desk in my house, in my office, as an everyday reminder that God confirmed. It was the exact same picture that he showed me when I prayed. And I know that, I know that beyond a doubt that God called me to this. I didn't choose myself. It's not an honor that you would put upon yourself. And the priests didn't get to do that either. But what's really amazing is that that's the Old Testament covenant. High priest, well, in the same way, we have a high priest named Jesus. And in Hebrews 4, it says this, seeing that we have a, a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we, and yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may be obtain mercy and find grace in our time. What I love about this is this. No matter what you're going through, and every one of us and sitting in this room goes through different things. Some of you may be struggling with addiction. Maybe some of you are struggling with anger. Some of you are struggling in their family. Some of you may be struggling financially or with job. But what we, we find ourselves in places of weakness, and the weakness is this. There are times in my life that things aren't going well, right? I mean, is that everybody? Am I the only one? Right? We, we all have times in our lives where things are just not going well. And here's what's amazing is that it says this, that you have a high priest in Jesus Christ. He understands all of your weaknesses. He understands what you're going through. Have you, how many of you have said, you just don't understand? How many of you have told some other human being, you don't understand? So the rest of you is lying. Okay, so maybe you're struggling with lying today. <laughs> you know? so, but here's the thing is that Jesus understands what you're going through. He understands your weakness. He understands body aches. He understands when, when people betray you. He understands when you're hurt. He understands when people talk behind your back. People, he understands when, 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 when you're gossiped about. He understands all of your weaknesses. And it says he sympathizes with you. Not only does he say, I get it, get over it. You're like, that's my kind of counseling. You know, like... Stop it or I'm going to bury you alive in a box. You know, stop it. Stop. Do you, do you like your marriage going in a bad way? Well, no, I don't like it. Well, then stop it. It's not that easy, though, is it? And Jesus sympathizes with us. Isn't that amazing? That we have, see, God could do whatever he wanted to do. God could be mean if he wanted to. God could say, you know what? Get your act together or just go to hell. I mean, that's what he could do, but he doesn't. He says, I, I sympathize. I understand what you've got going on. I understand you're hurting. I've hurt too. Let me minister to your heart. Let me in. A lot of us just don't let Jesus in. So it talks about how Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. And I'm going to tell you why this is important. 
At first, I was going to skip over this because and, and, uh, I didn't, wasn't going to take the time to explain it, but I'll take a, just a few minutes and do that. So when, when you're dealing... <laughs> so Melchizedek was a priest that was not in the order of Levi. So Levi was a tribe of Israel, and that entire tribe was designated for the serving of God in the temple or in the tabernacle, or the Sanhedrin, but the Levites were always the ones ministering in the church. And so from the Levites, they would select the priests, the rabbis, and the, the high priest was always from this except for one, and that was Melchizedek. So Melchizedek was the one priest, the one priest that was not from the order of Levi. And why this is important is that Jesus' ancestry goes all the way back to King David so the king could not be a Levite because the priest was. So let me simplify this very much. Jesus is the first high priest and the king of kings. He's both. He's the king of all kings and the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Pretty awesome, right? Okay. So, so the high priest had a job, and the job was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. So he would offer a sacrifice in, in, on behalf of the people. So I, I have a pretty neat little picture here. Can't see it's fuzzy because it gets blown up. But the high priest is over, and what they would do is this. In, in the book of Leviticus, it says, If the appoint or anointed priest sins, he is to bring a guilt Bringing guilt on the people, let him first offer to the Lord for his sin, which he has sinned a young bull without blemish. So you couldn't bring, you know, like if I was like, hey, we'll sacrifice one of my sheep, just not my best one. No, it's the opposite. You take your best one. It has to be without blemish. It has to be a perfect one. Well, guess what? We're showing some sheep and I only have one perfect one. And if we were still under the old covenant, the perfect one, Bumblebee is her name, I would have to bring Bumblebee, my favorite sheep, to be killed and sacrificed for my sin. In fact, a lot of people don't know this, but before you could sacrifice that animal, like the, the lamb, the Passover lamb, would have to go into your house for 14 days. It would become your pet. Can you imagine sacrificing a pet? And this was the reason was to show how serious sin is. We live in a world that doesn't take sin seriously. We live, I mean, you guys don't have to look very far to see how crazy our world is getting all around us, and God's not playing a game. Heaven and hell is on the line. He's not playing around. And so we don't take sin very seriously, but here's what it would say is that you'd have to get this young bull, you could use a sheep sometimes, a lamb, uh, a goat was sometimes offered, or a heifer, and he will bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the land, and he would lay his hand on the bull's head and kill it before the Lord. The point of you putting your hand on their head was to, to symbolize a transference of your sin to making them the scapegoat for you. Can you imagine you would have to imagine all the sin that you, your attitudes, your bad words, the bad jokes that you shouldn't have been telling, the, the, the bad thoughts that you've been having, the things that no one knows that you're doing that you're doing, and, and you would put that all on the head of this animal that didn't do it. That's the point, to show you that something had to die that did not do it, and that always pointed to Jesus. 
It always pointed back to Jesus. You see, the priest was to make the sacrifice. Jesus, as the great high priest, made himself the only sacrifice. John and uh, John the Baptist in the book of John chapter 1 verse 29 he says behold the lamb of god Jesus was called the lamb of god I got a joke for you you guys ready So Jesus is is the lamb of god right Okay and Mary gave birth to Jesus right So Mary did have a little lamb My daughter sent that one to me last night. I was like, oh, I got a good clean joke that I can use. All right. So not that I listen to bad jokes, but um, there's, there's not very many clean jokes out there. So, um, so anyway, so Jesus, he became this Passover lamb, right? And so I'm going to share with you some really awesome facts in just a minute, but I want to make sure I get this all done here. So Jesus, okay, so the new covenant with Jesus as the sacrifice He's the high priest, and he offered himself. He became the, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is, he is the great high priest, and he's the sacrificial Passover lamb. So in Hebrews chapter 9, it says, And according to the law, almost, in all thing, or all, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There's no taking the sins back. So for sins to be taken away, blood had to be shed. But in Hebrews chapter 10, he goes on to say, and he says, every priest that stands ministering daily and offering the repeatedly the same sacrifice, which never can take away the sins. What they're saying is this, the priest would sacrifice a lamb for your sin, but it didn't last. Because guess what? You would sin again, right? And then you would sin again, and you'd have to bring another lamb, and another lamb, and another lamb, and another lamb. And he says, so this isn't working. But there is a lamb that can sacrifice once and for all. And it says in verse 12 of Hebrews 10, But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, and from that time waiting till all his enemies made a footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So a couple of notes that I want to bring you to. Um, for, for, for everybody that's actually here all the time, they're like, wow, this is like the shortest sermon ever. Uh, I guess you're welcome. Um, um, but anyways, so a couple of notes that I want to bring out and a couple of historical facts that I want to make sure that we put down is this. John the Baptist did call Jesus the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. For, uh, John, not first John, but John 1.29. And Jesus was crucified. Here's what's really cool. The day that Jesus was on the cross was the same day that they were to sacrifice the Passover lamb. See, the Passover lamb goes all the way back to the first sacrifice lamb when they were, they were trying to get out of Egypt and the Lord says, I'm going to bring the greatest and worst plague upon, it'll be, I'm sending the, the angel of death to kill all firstborn unless you take the blood of a lamb and put it over your doorpost and over your windows. And so they took the, the blood of that lamb, and it was a Passover lamb. Every year, Israel was commanded to observe as a ceremony, as a festival, the Passover. And they would always have a Passover lamb, always sacrificed on the same day 
which we now call Good Friday. Jesus went to the cross and was put and nailed on the cruce, crucified at the same exact time that the Passover lamb was killed, becoming our Passover lamb. At that moment that Jesus breathed his last breath, the curtain was torn. All of these are historical facts. There's all facts. It's not like, well, I heard it was a fact. The curtain tore, so there was no separation of the holy and then the holy of holies. It was just now, get ready, the Holy Spirit's coming. You know, so there is no more, only the high priest has access. Now we all have access. And so Jesus was reported, this was something that was really cool. Jesus, it was reported that Jesus was seen by over 500 witnesses after his resurrection. 500 people saw him. You know, when I start thinking about, about like, like not believing in God, I start looking at all the evidence that points to Jesus, and I wonder why we don't believe. For those, anyone, and I don't want to be rude or, or mean or heartless, but I think it takes, I believe it takes more faith to not believe than it does faith to believe. And I'm going to tell you why. Because of this. There were 500 witnesses that saw Jesus. In fact, all the disciples had ran away and they were hiding because they were afraid of being crucified. So you have 500 witnesses. Now, let me give you some historical facts. Historical fact number one, Jesus was a real man, period. Historical figure. Actually, the most well-known human being ever to walk the earth. Everyone knows his name. You may not like him, but everyone knows his name. Everyone. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, fact, by one of his own disciples, fact. Jesus was beaten and flogged publicly, historical fact. Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, historical fact. Jesus' clothes were stripped off of him while he was on the cross and sold to the people out there, the bystanders, public, historical fact. Jesus' tomb was found empty, historical fact. See, the thing is, is that you have to then put, well, it was empty, so you have, then, then what happens is the burden of belief then comes upon your shoulders. What do you believe about the empty tomb? It was empty! It was empty, so what do you do with the evidence that's before you? So, this leads me to a man named Peter Stoner. Peter Stoner was a mathematician, and uh, I should have wrote down the college. I forgot it off the top of my head, all the different things going on in my mind. I forgot which college he was from, but he, he was a, 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 an odds maker. What are the odds? So he wrote up this, this thing, him and a bunch of his students came to, what are the odds of just a, any person, a, a man, fulfilling just eight of the prophecies. See, Jesus fulfilled every prophecy in the Old Testament, and there were over 47 that directly, that were very clearly directly, and he fulfilled every one of them. So he says, well, let's just take eight, and let's take less, the, uh, the less of the supernatural ones. So, like, for instance, one of the, one of the um, um, odds that he was working with was on um, 
being betrayed uh, for 30 pieces of silver. You know, that's pretty specific, 30 pieces of silver, and they can verify that. So, you know, that's, you know, he doesn't have any control over that. Jesus did not have, hey, would you please put somebody up to betraying me for 30 pieces of silver? It'll look really good on my resume for Messiah one day. I mean, Jesus didn't do that. And so what would happen is as they went through this, a lot of the prophecies fulfilled were what people did. He couldn't control whether people flogged him or not. He couldn't control whether they hung him on a tree or not. You see, all the prophecies that he fulfilled, so what Peter Stoner did is he goes, well, what are the odds of, of you know, just a, a man being born in, in Bethlehem? And what are the odds? So he began to just take eight prophecies, just eight of the many. And he said, well, most of the, the ones that he chose were decided by the enemy. And he, he came up with this figure. One out of ten to the 17th power. That means 17 zeros behind the 10. A big number. Kind of like our national debt. So I'm sorry, maybe, maybe that was too, too soon. Sorry, <clears throat> not really. So anyways, so that's a big number. So then he began to, they say, well, how can we equate what that's like? How, what is that like? So he goes, it's like this. If we were to take silver dollars and put them and, and cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep, Entire state of Texas, mark one of them, buried anywhere you want to, blindfold a guy and send him out in the state of Texas and let him wander around and on his first try, pick it. That's what it would be like. What I'm wanting you to understand is it's impossible for anyone to fulfill those prophecies just by chance. That was only eight of them. That was only eight. You're right. That was only eight. Here's the reality is that only one can be the Messiah because only one could fulfill the prophecies because only one could do all of those things. And these prophecies came hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born on this earth. So I'm sitting here going, how do we deny this, right? You can verify where he was born. You can verify that he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. You can verify all of these, these historical facts and you can go back to the Old Testament and verify the prophecies made. So why is it so hard for us to believe? In fact, what's interesting is most atheists who really use logic as their battleground, if they actually use their logic and they go and investigate, almost all of them get saved. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You can't deny truth. So let me tell you about one of them, Josh McDowell. He, he was a, a, a leading atheist that hated Christianity. He goes, I'm going to prove it wrong. He wrote, he began to write and put all of his investigation into a book that was called um, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And it was, it was set up to be the evidence that demanded that Christianity was a lie, a hoax. And it turned out to be the proof. And one of the things, just a little brief thing that I loved from that book, um, is that what he started off with was just talking about how Christianity was so unique. It was different. There was no other religion that could be even held close to Christianity. And especially when it came to the Bible. Because there's no other religious book, the, the, the Quran, there's no other book. The, the Quran was written by one man over a course of 15 years. This was 40 men over the course of 1,500 years, all agreeing on God. 
that's remarkable and unique. Written in three different languages, it's still the number one bestseller every single year. Hmm. All right, so Josh McDowell also wrote a book, More Than a Carpenter. I love this, and it was a very, it's a very small book, but it was very simple, more than a carpenter. He had basically this one three-point precipice, and he says this, Jesus was either Lord, liar, or a lunatic, because Jesus said that he was Lord over and over and over and over. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father except through me. That's a pretty bold statement. I am the bread of life. <laughs> I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will not die, and though he dies, he will live. I mean, so when you start talking about the prophecies or the things that Jesus said about himself, and at the woman at the well, she says, well, the Messiah is going to explain something. He goes, that guy, I'm he. So, I mean, everything that he said always came back to this point of him saying, I am the Messiah. So here's the deal. He's either who he says he is or he's a liar. Now, let me ask you something about lying. Anybody have any experience when in their childhood? We'll just go with the childhood because I don't want to. I'm hoping that you're, you got past the lying stages in your life and the rest of you are like, I never lied as a kid. You're lying. All right, so, so here's the thing. When it comes to lying, did you lie to get into trouble or to get out of trouble? How many of you, when you lied, got out, was trying to get out of trouble? How many of you lied to actually like, I want that whooping. I did it. How many of you lied to get into trouble? No takers? Come on. Where are you at? You know what I mean? Seriously. How many of you would have died for your lie? Think about this. How many of you would have said, I'll go to the worst death possible on a Roman cross for the lie? No one dies for the lie. They lie to get out of death. They lie to get out of trouble. They don't lie to get in it. He's Lord, liar, or he's a lunatic. How many of you know the difference between somebody sane and somebody a lunatic? Do all of you know the difference? We live in a world of lunacy right now, I know, and we should know the difference. Do you think the world and half of the world as we know it would follow a lunatic? Nobody, there are 5,000 people would not have crossed the sea for a raging lunatic. The world would not have gotten turned upside down for a raging lunatic. Think about it. This is just common sense, isn't it? He's either a lord or he's a liar. And if he's a liar, he's got to be a lunatic. You're telling me that you guys don't know the difference between a lunatic, a liar, and a lord? Come on, right? So if this doesn't build your faith, I don't know what will... Lee Strobel, he wrote a, a book called Case for Christ, and he was a, a, an atheist. He, his, his wife and his daughter got saved, and he was very upset about it. He set out as an investigative journalist for the New York Times, and he set out to kill Christianity. I'm killing it. I'm destroying it, right? And so he's an investigative journalist. So he even has an agenda going into this. And more and more and more and more, he kept diving in and he kept digging out. And, it kept, and, and his marriage was falling apart. His life was falling apart. He started drinking for a time. And 
And, and, and all because every time he turned around, the evidence wasn't pointing in what he wanted it to be. He wanted it to fail. He wanted Christianity to be a sham. He wanted it to be a lie. And every time he turned around, the evidence wasn't pointing to that. And so finally, one of his friends says, listen, you're an investigative journalist. Report the truth. Report the evidence that you're finding and quit trying to just prove it false just to say it's false. And he wrote this, only in a world where there is faith only in a world where faith is difficult can faith even exist. Isn't that good? You see, one of the things, the staple of Christianity is faith. It's taking that step of faith. So you have to work just as hard to not believe in God as you do to believe, especially when there's this much evidence. And you know what the greatest evidence of all is? Let me, the greatest evidence of all is you. You who believe in Jesus. And Jesus has truly changed your life. You are evidence. You are the evidence to a lost and broken world. So, when I start thinking about faith, I love his statement. Only in a world where faith is difficult. Don't we live in a world where faith is difficult? Only in this kind of a world can faith even exist. How about that? If you would bow your heads. We will always always have an altar call. I will never not invite people to Jesus. I remember as a little boy, Emmanuel Baptist Church in Miami, Oklahoma. I remember one day <clears throat> that morning, my mom led me to the Lord in a prayer, and she came, when we went to church, mom said, well, we're going to go forward today, and I was terrified. I couldn't look up, and all I could do is look at the floor, and you know what? They had red carpet. I remember. That's the only thing. The name and red carpet is all I remember about that church. I'll never forget the day I gave my life to the Lord. Maybe you're sitting here today, and maybe you've been fighting against faith. Maybe you've been fighting this whole time. But maybe today it made sense. Maybe today you're willing to take a step of faith. Faith is choosing to, to take a step when I don't know if my foot's going to hit or not, but I'm going to believe it is. Faith is knowing what I can't prove or knowing what I can't see, but knowing it nonetheless. And a relationship with Jesus is exactly that. It's about a relationship. There are so many people who know of Jesus but don't know him. If you died today and you stood before him in judgment, do you know that you would go to heaven? There's so many people that I've heard, well, I have an arrangement with God. That's not a good arrangement if that's what you're, you're banking it on. Or when people, when I get ready to do a funeral and somebody says, well, he was a good old boy. What does that mean? Well, he didn't go to church, but he was good. Well, the Bible says no one is good. Oh, he, he, he didn't go to church, 
but he believed in God. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Because if you believe in God, it changes everything in your life. There's a lot of people walking and living their life without any change, saying that they know God. If you know Him, He changes you. So maybe somebody needs that change in their life. Maybe today's the day that you need to surrender your life to the Lord. With every head bowed, every eye closed, if today is that day for you, just slip your hand up in the air.